If you would, again, um, we're going to pray in a moment together, uh, but just want to um, tell you that John Martinez uh, is in the hospital and, and could use our prayers during this time. Uh, I know that Chad had um, open heart surgery, but he's doing well, correct? Okay. He's out of ICU now, which is a huge praise, but continue to pray for Linda's son, Chad. Um, and there are so many other needs that exist. I'm so glad to see Ms. Ethel with us um, this, this morning. Um, there are so many needs that, that exist um, among us and beyond us. And so um, even as I pray, you will know of needs uh, that perhaps I don't know of. And I would just ask that um, in this time of intercession that you pray by name for those individuals. Uh, so let's go before our, our great God in prayer. Lord, it is our privilege to bring before you the concerns of your people. We know that as we lift up our prayers, that you hear them, that our prayers are indeed the breath of our faith. And so we pray today for those needs that exist before us. I know that there are many that each of us have loved ones and friends who face various obstacles and difficulties. Whatever those may entail, I ask Holy Spirit that your peace would rest upon them. I ask Holy Spirit that you would be their guide and their strength and their comfort. I pray Holy Spirit, that you would direct our hearts and our minds and our hands and our feet to serve and to pray as we are able for them. I give praise for the way in which you intervened in Chad's life, and I ask that you would continue to grant him recovery. I give you praise that Ms. Ethel is here with us this morning. I pray for Jane Howerton. Uh, her situation continues to um, go up and down, and right now it's in a spiral that's downward. But we're asking that you would um, revive and to restore um, in accordance with your will. And Lord, for my friend John today and for Lisa, as they just continue to face complication after complication, I just pray that your touch would be upon him. And so, Lord Christ, our faith looks up to thee, great physician. And we ask that um, even in the circumstance that exists with this young lady from Vacation Bible School that you would um, grant favor to her and that she would be healed 
and that the COVID would not um, have dire effects upon her at all. And for those who face concerns concerning this virus during this season, during this time, we, we pray that you would alleviate them. We are praying, Lord Jesus, by your hand, if it be your will, that um, you would blot out this um, virus. But I also ask that as we go through these seasons, that we would learn to lean into and more upon you, our Lord and Savior. We pray in your name. Amen. Earlier, we, we sang the hymn, Trust and Obey. Um, you may not know the story behind that hymn. It was written by a gentleman named John Samus. And he had attended, he was attending an evangelistic event that D.L. Moody had led. And a young man had come to faith in Christ under D.L. Moody's preaching. And they had allowed a time for individuals to stand and to share about their conversion experience. And when this young lad stood up to talk about his, it was clear he did not know very much about the Bible and its doctrines. And at the end of his ramblings, you might say, the young lad responded, I'm not really sure about everything, but I'm going to trust and I'm going to obey. And Samus took those words and turned it into a hymn. I could personally learn a thing or two from him about 30 years ago now, it's almost 30 years, I began work in some form of ministry. And over the course of all that time, I know I look much younger, but over the course of all that time, I've taken a number of um, spiritual tests and inventories and strength finders. And I am sad to admit that you know, you look at your scores where you're high and where you're low. I've never scored high in the area of faith. Our son Whitman was diagnosed with plagiocephaly at four months old. I don't know if you know what plagiocephaly is. I didn't. But it's where um, he was born early. He was in the NICU and his, his head was kind of misshapen. Um, my father, who's a medical doctor, had noticed it first and said we might need to get it looked at. And sure enough, they put him in one of those little helmets. And if you ever see a child, a baby, in one of those little helmets, don't stare. Don't ask questions like, oh, you're trying to make him into a football player. Um, that's not helpful. Okay. But he wore that little helmet. And the, the thing about it was, was he outgrew the helmet. Now that's the abnormal part. That shouldn't happen. And the doctors were alarmed and so they scheduled an MRI on his head to find out if he had a brain tumor or hydrocephalus or something along those lines. 
So it was about 10 days later before we were going to do that test and find those results. And I will tell you, I cried like a baby every day, worrying for the worst. I like to control outcomes. And I was definitely not in control during those days. Again, it saddens me to admit, but I have a great deal of difficulty when it comes to surrendering that which is most precious to me, like my wife and my kids. And so, Genesis chapter 22. Here we find the patriarch Abraham demonstrating how as we grow up in faith that we can trust God with that which is most precious to us. In Genesis 22, God tells Abraham to sacrifice his uniquely born son, the son of promise, Isaac. Some people voice trouble with this directive. Because no loving God would request such a thing and no loving father would heed it. In the Jerusalem Diamond, the author Noah Gordon says through one of his characters, I don't believe in sacrifice. If the story of Abraham and Isaac is true, Abraham was insane, not religious. But the context surrounding these events like is true in all of Scripture, makes all the difference. To date, Abraham had been growing in his faith, sometimes trusting and obeying, and sometimes drifting and doubting. If you still have your Bibles open, flip back to Genesis chapter 12. I'm going to read verses 1 through 5. Genesis 12, beginning at verse 1. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarah, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had, and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. I contend that Abraham received a call twice. Um, he had been told to go to Canaan from Ur, but he stopped short in Haran. Now, the reason why, we don't know exactly, but if you look at Genesis eleven thirty one, 31, he stays in Haran with his father. It takes a bit before Abraham fully obeys, leaving behind his father Terah and going all the way. This early account reminds me of Bilbo Baggins in The Hobbit. Gandalf the wizard 
invites Bilbo on an adventure. But Bilbo doesn't want to go because he fears it will make him late for dinner. While Bilbo at first expresses this unwillingness to step outside of his comfort zone, he ultimately does embark on this unexpected journey. It is a journey that would change Bilbo forever and for the better. And it is a journey that would impact Middle Earth for good. Why did Abraham initially stop short of his destination? There's no way of actually knowing, but I contend it's something along the lines that he was afraid he would be late for dinner. I believe Abram was comfortable in the stability and the security and the safety alongside his father. But ultimately, he goes. What we see is that Abraham began in his faith journey. He sputtered, and then he embarks fully on the journey God called him to make. It might serve for us as a reflection of how our growth in faith begins. James Montgomery Boyce says, although Abram believed God enough to start out on his journey after God appeared to him in Ur, his faith was still weak and needed much cultivation. It is a way of saying that one does not need to be a spiritual giant to become a follower of God. After all, none of us is a spiritual giant. All one has to do is begin to follow God. This early account with Abraham thus shows that our coming to faith means responding to God whenever he calls. But then it also shows that our growth in faith means preparing ourselves to go wherever God leads. How would you complete this sentence right now? An adventure I sense God is calling me on that I am resistant to take is fill in the blank. Such an adventure might involve moving to a new place, or it might mean doing something remarkably hard right where you are. But if it is a God-sized adventure, do not count on it being easy. Just count on it being life-changing. If it is truly from the Lord, it will ultimately transform us for the better and it will impact others for the good. Moving through Genesis, Abram's God-sized adventure continues to unfold, as does his growth in faith. Again, I'm in Genesis chapter 15. I'm not going to read it verbatim, but verses 1 and verses 5, God tells Abram in a vision that his reward will be great and his descendants 
will be as numerous as the stars. Abram questions how that could be the case because his servant, Eliezer, was set to become his heir. He had no children. And in the ancient world, the greatest tragedy imaginable was childlessness because no one would be left to carry on the family name. In our culture, when we introduce ourselves, what is a common question that a person asks us? What do you do? Now just imagine for a moment that I was out of vocational ministry and I said to the person who asked that question, well, I'm a preacher. What do you imagine the first question that person might ask me to follow up with that? Oh, where do you preach? Kind of awkward. In Hebrew culture, names were what really mattered in identification of a person. And so consider that Abram means exalted father. So in Genesis 17:5, the Lord then expands Abram's name to Abraham. And Abraham means father of a multitude. You might remember the old vacation Bible school song that I love so much, Father Abraham. You know, and I, and I love doing all the motions. I think it's just a lot of fun. But when Abram introduced himself, I doubt it absurd to imagine that someone might have asked, tell me, exalted father, how many children do you have? And at that time, he would say, actually, I, I have none. Or once he becomes Abraham, you must have a lot of children, father of a multitude. Well, I just have the one after Genesis 16. Could you imagine how the meaning of his name and the circumstances of his life might have impacted his sense of being? And yet, in Genesis 15:6, we read, He believed in the Lord, and God reckoned it to him as righteousness. It is that quality of Abram's faith that serves as a precursor to why we call him the father of our faith. As I mentioned last Sunday, Brooke and I were sharing um, our adoption story, and I made reference to doing a devotional study through Genesis, and I had written down the words that Abram doesn't let his feelings dictate his faith. Rather, he lets his faith shape his feelings. Put it like this. You are a singer who is at risk of losing your vocal cords. Or you are a parent dealing with a child who has drug addiction. Or you are a single person 
who has always desired to be married. In various circumstances of our lives, the way we feel amid uncertain or trying situations can easily dictate whether we trust God or not. Things look bleak, so we doubt, and perhaps we try to take things into our own hands. Come on, y'all, you can identify with that, right? It looks like, how can we believe God for this as he has said it? I must do something myself to make it so. It soon proves to be the case with the father of our faith, too. In Genesis chapter 16, Abram tries to take control of matters himself. He agrees to marry Hagar, Sarai's handmaid, and he has a child by her named Ishmael. Only Ishmael is not God's son of unique promise to Abram. Once more, what this shows me is that the great father of our faith was not always a giant in the faith. His faith constantly grew through both moments of unyielding trust as well as amid times of undeniable doubt. The ongoing account with Abram reveals that our growth in faith means trusting God even when things don't add up in our minds. And so often things that are going on around us just don't add up in our minds. How would you complete this sentence right now? Presently in my faith journey, I need to believe God for fill in the blank. What do you need to believe God for right now? Boyce suggests that one of our problems is that we are always looking down. Essentially, we are looking at ourselves and that leads to doubt. We look at ourselves and say, I don't see how I can do that. Or I don't see how I can believe God for what he is promising. If you and I were as old as Abram and had a wife the age of Sarah, how many of us would not conclude, how is God's promise going to take shape? That I will have offspring more numerous than the stars of the sky. We might also ask ourselves, or think to ourselves, somehow, I've got to work this out for myself. Abram's faith was not perfect, and neither will ours yet be. 
But we must not let those moments in our lives when we lack patience in God's promises or during those moments in our lives when we grow fearful amid our predicaments to deter us from our journey in faith. It never deterred Abraham. Remember that he was a converted pagan. The father of our faith came from a pluralistic pagan culture. But the Lord called him out from it, and the Lord was constantly shaping him in his faith journey. Abraham was constantly learning more about exactly who this God was who called him in the first place. Can't we identify with that? And so we land on a very difficult passage. Genesis 22. But hopefully we can gain a better contextual understanding of it. Abraham's background meant that he was well versed in the idols of his day. You know, I've often reflected upon Sarah in Genesis 12. Could you imagine if you were uh, the wife of Abram and he came to you and he said, we're moving. And she said, where? And he said, I don't know. And she says, why? And he says, God told me. I imagine one of the questions Sarah might have asked is which God? because there were so many of them. And one of those gods was a god called Moloch. And Moloch required child sacrifices. Before we roll our eyes at this, keep in mind that our Moloch's of today are just more civilized. Think about how the false gods of success, wealth, and prestige often call us to sacrifice our children upon their altars, while God calls us to cherish them, spend quality time with them, and raise them up in the hope found in Christ. My friend Mike Hicks will call me periodically, and one of the things that he often reminds me of is don't you neglect your children. God is thus doing two things here. He is testing the ongoing growth of Abraham's faith, but he is also revealing to Abraham and to us that he is not like the false gods, Moloch, and so forth. There is absolutely no doubt that the instruction for Abraham in Genesis chapter 22 was gut-wrenching. Abraham had waited until his old age to miraculously have this child with Sarah, and now the Lord was asking for the unimaginable. But to say that Abraham must have been insane rather than religious is just uneducated. In fact, Abraham 
was acting in part from what his past experiences had taught him about religion and about the nature of God or gods. And let's face it, the idols of our hearts often linger long. So the father of our faith was now about to grow in the greatest truth of our faith through the greatest test of it. Sidney Greidenhaus points out that a deliberate parallel exists between Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 22. In Genesis 12, the Lord commanded Abram to go and to offer up his past, his country, his kindred, his father's house, and to receive the promises of the Lord's rich blessings. In this narrative, the Lord commands Abraham to go, but now to offer up his future, your son, your only son of promise, Isaac, whom you love. The stakes are raised. Now Abraham has to rely on the Lord even when the Lord seems to go back on his covenant promises. But when he obeys, the Lord will speak to him a final time the promised blessings in heightened form. Can you imagine traveling three days with your son, believing at the end of that journey you were called to sacrifice him. The time would seem like an eternity, in some way like the time that passed as I was waiting for Whitman's tests and results. Let this picture resonate in your mind's eye. Abraham leads his son up a hill where Isaac carries the wood upon his back. Finally, they reach the top, the place which God had told him about. And lest we forget amid the horror of this scene why Abraham is doing all of this, Moses reminds us that he is obeying God. Only the Lord never intended for Abraham to sacrifice Isaac in the manner of a false god like Moloch. Instead, God provides a ram in the thicket. I cannot help but point out the draw <laughs> dropping, the jaw dropping extent of the topology of Genesis 22. Biblical scholar Gordon Wenham observes, there an altar has to be built, and the wood must be laid on the altar. This was a real sacrifice according to proper ritual procedures, and there was plenty of time for Isaac to realize, if he had not before, what was going to happen, and for Isaac to run away. But he didn't. In fact, he allowed himself to be bound before Abraham was to cut his throat. What it indicates is that Isaac 
willingly submitted to God's command, which had been given to his father. So catch this. Abraham represents the heart of a father tasked with surrendering his uniquely begotten son. Isaac represents the submission of a son to his father's will. So it is that we should know how excruciating it was for the heavenly father to surrender his only begotten son. And so it is that we should come to know that Jesus Christ submitted to his father's will in order to save sinners like you and me. Can you see the promised blessings in heightened form? The heavenly father led his son up a hill called Calvary. And the son carried the wood upon his back. Only there would be no ram in the thicket for this son. There would be no ram in the thicket for Christ. Because Christ is the lamb. And so it is so that those who follow in the faith of Abraham are called his children. And we become more numerous than the stars of the sky. Do you see the promise in heightened form that Jesus Christ is the lamb. Among many lessons that we could draw from Genesis chapter 22, and there are so many things from this text that you could teach, but among the many lessons that I think we can learn from Genesis chapter 22 is that we can trust God with that which is most precious to us because he gave to us that which was most precious to him. I can trust God with that which is most precious to me because he gave to me that which is most precious to him. Our growth in faith means that we come to know the heart and the nature of the one true God. He is no Moloch. How would you complete this sentence right now? I struggle to come to terms with the heart and nature of God in seasons of my life when... Fill in the blank. And listen to these lyrics from Ryan Stevenson's song, Eye of the Storm. When the test comes in and the doctor says, I've only got a few months left, 
It's like a bitter pill I'm swallowing. I can barely take a breath. And when addiction steals my baby girl and there's nothing I can do, my only hope is to trust you. I trust you, Lord. Henri Nouwen compares such trust to trapeze artists. The flyer is the one who releases from the swing, and the catcher is the one who catches. So I'm, I'm sure maybe you've been to a circus or you've seen a circus and you've got that individual and they're swinging on those swings back and forth and that finally the, the one just flies through the air. And what that person who lets go of the swing must do is trust that the catcher is going to get him or her. It takes trust. My question today is will you trust the supreme catcher? The one who caught a ram in the thicket to take Isaac's place. My question for you is will you trust and obey the supreme catcher today? the one who sent the spotless lamb to take our place. If you trust in Christ and Christ alone, he promises to never let you go, no matter what season you may face. He catches us. If truth be told, so I'm going to begin now today is the start of 66 messages through 66 books. Our redemption story. And if truth be told, I cannot tie everything up in a neat, tidy bow and make sense of everything for you. God's mind is so much greater than ours. But I'm going to trust and I'm going to obey. And I would ask along this journey that you would trust and obey too. Let's pray together. Lord our God, it is so hard if we are honest to trust you during certain seasons of our lives. But I pray that you would bring us through our journey of faith to a place and a point where even with that which is most precious to us, we can hand over to you and we can believe in your promises and we can trust in your goodness and we can rest in your grace because we know, Heavenly Father,
you surrendered unto us that which is most precious to you. And we know, Lord Christ, that you submitted to the will of your Father because you love us so. Holy Spirit, help us to surrender all today, I pray. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. I would invite you to stand um, as we conclude our service today singing um, the first few stanzas of I Surrender All. Let's stand together. <laughs>